Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today are among the nation's leading defense acquisition thinkers to discuss how the United States and its allies can move more quickly to refill weapons stocks and field new capabilities with allies and partners as a key element of deterring China and Russia from miscalculating. Joining us today are Dr. Jerry McGinn, a soldier scholar who is the executive director of the Center for Government Contracting in the School of Business at George Mason University. He served in the Pentagon's Office of Manufacturing and Industrial Based Policy among many jobs uh, over the years, including an in industry and is a proud graduate of the United States Military Academy, uh, as well as uh, earned his PhD from Georgetown University. And Bill Greenwald, who is with uh, the University of Maryland School of Public Policy, who has been among uh, the nation's most influential uh, architects of acquisition reform uh, over uh, the course of many, many decades of service. He's also served in industry, uh, in consultancy, uh, keeps getting drawn back to this topic as an issue of, of passion uh, and made a particular mark on the nation's security um, in his professional staff jobs at the Senate Armed Services Committee, as well as the Government Affairs uh, Committee. Guys, welcome to the program and thanks so very much for joining us. Great to be with you, Vago, and uh, great to have you as be with you as well, Bill. Happy to, to talk about this issues and looking forward to the discussion. Uh, long overdue and very, very glad to have both of you uh, guys on and indeed just letting the audience know that we're going to be doing a series of programs like this uh, to delve into different aspects of uh, industrial strategy. And I said acquisition strategy, I meant defense industrial strategy because you guys really are um, trying to operate on a very, very different level, a strategic level and not a tactical one. Uh, before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And we're a proud Farnborough International Airshow media partner. Uh, and our coverage of Britain's leading airshow is sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. Um, Guys, I want to sort of delve a little bit more deeply uh, into this question of weapon stocks and, and how the United States can refill them. And we're going to try to eat the acquisition, defense acquisition or defense industrial strategy elephant uh, over a course of, of, of many shows. Um, but one of the things which I'm curious about is, you know, the United States is the arsenal of democracy. We're an important generator of not just military systems, but capabilities. Uh, we're doing it for ourselves, but also our allies and partners. And indeed, Ukraine would not be where it is right now. I mean, the president uh, authorized $4 billion uh, in arms transfers to Ukraine just in the past couple of days alone. Um, and so, you know, the, the problem is we are starting to deplete our stocks. Uh, and increasingly looking at trying to refill them. And yet the answer keeps coming up. Well, you know, it'll take years, it'll take two years, it'll take four years, whether it's Javelin or Stinger or any one of a number of other uh, systems. I would note PACOM's number one requirement is the LRASM, the long range anti-ship missile uh, air launched, which has been a, a PACOM priority, literally going back to Rat Willard's days. And we're gonna be at 400 something weapons in 2026, right? Th that's an afternoon's worth of weapons shooting. Um, and so I guess the question is, and Jerry, maybe why don't you start us off, right? How do we need to be thinking about this? How do we need to be doing this? Because, you know, the, the two or four years, I mean, we're not developing an atom bomb. We're producing systems that we've had in inventory for uh, a long time. I know there are supply chain challenges, but how, how does the whole ecosystem need to be thinking about this to rapidly fill these stocks 
and to be actually more pragmatic, hey, 75% solution, you know, a thousand missiles at 75% solutions are maybe better than a hundred percent solution, but you only have 250 of them. It's a great question, uh, but I, I think it's, it starts with how we acquire systems in the Department of Defense is sort of the challenge. It's, you know, we, we develop these finely tuned uh, programs that have you know, very specific requirements for systems and, and they're you know, fine tuned in terms of how many we're going to build, what period of time, and the production is you know, very tightly kind of um, configured so the company can make the most um, um, profit and so the, the government gets what it needs, only what it needs, right? And so, um, so a lot of these programs like Javelin Stinger, our um, Stinger is, hasn't been delivered to a U.S. military component since 19, 2000. So, you know, and Javelin is, you know, similarly sort of, you know, in the current inventory. So the challenge is, is, is as these production lines, uh, you know, um, get older, uh, the the demand is very kind of um, can be um, uh, drops quite a bit, and so it makes it harder to sustain for our company. So and, and then so it becomes largely uh, an obsolescence uh, and uh, and a, a cap, uh, capacity issue. Um, and I just think that there isn't enough thinking on the on the front end on um, ex exporting. You know how you know how what are the international customers for our, this capability or potential so we can start building stockpiles um you know there's not enough thinking of that but that done at the front end and likewise on sustainment so um and i think this is just highlighted that and one of the issues that i you know found when i was in the department is that you know obsolescence or what the, the department calls um DMSMS, which is probably the worst acronym ever, um, to finish, uh, diminish materials uh, sources and uh, mater material. Anyway, I forget the name of it. But the, the point is, is that that's always been an orphan. And we spend $3 billion a year reverse engineering parts. Um, and this is totally done at the very tactical level, PEO by PEO when there's got to be better ways to do this and and um in terms of you know you know having the tdps that others can you can do contract manufacturing uh or using 3d printing um and we're it's really the 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 ukraine situation is shining a bright light on this and i just really think that that's where the the focus needs to be is how do we kind of um build this surge capability because it's not there now Bill, um, you know, one, one of the things I was just at Farmer in the Royal International Air Tattoo, and I met, I met with John Speller, who's a member of parliament, who's one of really the world's strategic thinkers, and he's always ahead of the power curve on, on a, a lot of issues. He'd served uh, as armed forces minister. And one of the points I remember him telling me many, many, many years ago, when things were tailing off and we were saying, hey, we don't have to build as much stuff was, hey, maybe the best approach to this, even if it's expensive, is to actually trickle produce stuff to make sure that actually a line doesn't close for things that you know you might need in, in, in the future, that it's a lot cheaper than not stopping manufacture, right? I mean, they got in trouble for nuclear submarine production, for example, because they'd stopped building it and then the astute started and, and thankfully there was an electric boat that could help them. Bill, how do we need to be sort of thinking about this and, and managing these lines? Because ultimately, right, I mean, the companies are incentivized for profit. So we find that there are some components in it that we go, well, wait a minute, what, why didn't we use actually the component that was not like, you know what I mean? There's something that was a more standard component. Once upon a time, we would have done that. We would have specified that actually, like, hey, we don't need something oddball here. We need something 
uh, that's the commercial you know equivalent that will be in production 10 20 years from now how, how from your standpoint how do we need to be thinking about this ecosystem yeah I, I think the first thing is is to remember uh, and go back in history that every single time we've wanted to ramp up production in times of crisis whether with World War one World War two Korea uh, just just keep going to get these lines up and running again is a two-year uh, uh, process, which frankly, in time of urgency, you don't have. So I think we need to start thinking of that every single uh, uh, arms line is a national, actually an alliance uh, uh, critical uh, uh, resource that needs to be maintained at some level and, and a plan for ramping up quickly needs to be put in place. Uh, I think we're, you know, we're, we're being surprised by Ukraine by the amount of munitions being used. Uh, we've planned in a, in a way that is designed that we're not gonna use too many munitions and then we're gonna you know, escalate up to something uh, uh, higher and then um, and move on. Well, the reality is, is that's not, not the way the world is right now and we need to adjust take these lines and figure out one, how to keep them going, how to ramp them up, and frankly, how to duplicate them uh, around the Alliance in ways that we can maintain the capabilities that are needed to deter uh, the kind of aggression we're seeing in Ukraine. Um, Jerry, you uh, were familiar, um, you know, having served um, across uh, administrations, and I should say you're a very bipartisan uh, public servant. Um, you know, during the Obama administration, there was a focus on the tier by tier, sector by sector that Brett Lambert, uh, whom you work with, uh, started to sort of get a sense on what the choke points were. Um, you did similar work on a national commission uh, when uh, the Trump administration did its survey of uh, the supply chain and, and potential vulnerabilities. And I have a question about how we do a better job on identifying these vulnerabilities. I have a tendency, you know, we have a tendency of sort of, <laughs> we do all of this work and then we find out like, oh, wow, <laughs> to you, we, we would have been good to have a little bit of notice or we have the notice and we still don't act with alacrity, right? Maybe uh, is that as to your orphan question. Um, Jerry, I mean, ultimately, two years though is, you know, as, as Bill said, is an insufficient answer. I mean, this is like FDR asking for something and waiting two years to get it, right? We're talking about, Jazz, javelins, right? We're, we're not talking about atom bombs, and we developed the atom bomb in roughly three years, right? Um, I mean, ultimately, what's, I mean, the Pentagon owns these designs, right? So is this a question of actually redesigning some of these systems? Or is it, you know, in the event that an American manufacturer can't do it, right? And I have no dog in this fight. I'm not trying to help MBDA, for example, right? But they know their way around a weapon. Um, you know, do you do you just build to print and and, and just say, hey, look, uh, great, you know, Lockheed, you do what you got to do. Hey, Raytheon, you do what you got to do. And I'm going to bring three other guys in because it turns out, you know, the the Norwegians uh, can scratch my itch on this or or the or or the uh, Franco-British um, weapons uh, company, MBDA, could do it, right? And the Italians, yeah. of course, uh, involved in it. I mean, is that the way to do this? Is just to sort of say, hey, whoever can get these to me sooner gets a bonus. Thanks very, very much. Yeah, I mean, I think there are there are ways you can um, incentivize um, faster production, um, and they they would they could be things like your like your outlining Vago, but a lot of it comes down to I mean you know building rebuilding industrial capacity or expanding it does take a bit of effort, and part of it is that 
you know, like there's when you you have to qualify new lines, you have to um, test and evaluate replacement parts, you know, these things that, um, you, know, uh, you know, when you, these things take time and they're the kind of things that um, will get us to a two year kind of rebuild. Now, what you have to consciously do if you want to reduce that is take more risk, right? And um, and that has to be a conscious decision by you know the department say you know we need this now, uh, and we, you know there has to be you know some you know um, recognition of the risk profile that that would create and identification of the companies and so on. So I think there are ways you know, but you know what we what we have now is sort of finely tuned programs. That you know um, that you know to change things just takes qu quite a bit of effort, and so you know how do you bring more kind of uh, kind of optionality or that you can uh, accelerate things? And um, right now the system's really not really built to do that, um, um, and so we'd have to you know look at these on a case by case basis and how can we you know kind of accelerate um, um, these kind of production efforts. You know, depending on who you talk to, right, you talk to some people in the industry and they're like, well, the administration is doing nothing. You go in and you talk to people in the administration and actually they give you a lot of very tangible examples of yeah. how they are doing substitution and are moving that ball. But as you said, I mean, in fact, I was talking to a senior uh, person in the Pentagon who was, um, you know, saying that it is happening a little bit too much at the tactical edge. But one of the points that he was making is those are the guys we're trying to empower those guys to make these changes because it's very hard for us to direct these from the top. We're telling the whole system substitute, do what you got to yeah. do, balance that that risk. Um, you know, Bill, let me bring, bring you in. Right. I mean, we're, we're all here on this program you know, do see Buy American as, as toxic. We're much more bi-allied uh, folks. We understand the importance of maintaining national capability, but not everything is an integral national capability, right? Um, what is the role and how do we bring and better leverage and harness our allies and partners to do this? Because whether they're French or British or Italian or Swedish or Norwegian or German, there's a lot of capability, a lot of technology, a lot of capacity and more importantly, a lot of very pragmatic thinking, right? Our allies and partners don't pick highly obscure, you know what I mean? They don't inject necessary complication into a system that then drives price, uh, right? Whereas our system has become incentivized to vendor lock, uh, for, for example, right? I mean, how do, we, how do we bring our friends and allies into this equation at a critical time? Yeah, I think there is... Uh, and and a challenging political time, right? Unfortunately. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely. No, I think the first is to recognize that, yes, indeed, our allies have something to bring to the table. And, you know, during the uh, last few decades, when uh, their defense expenditures have been uh, 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 less than, than ours as a percentage of GDP, they have had to become more innovative. They've had had to try to do, do uh, uh, more with less. And there's some real, very interesting innovations out there uh, that are that are potentially cheaper and faster than 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 what we have, and we should be looking looking toward that. We should also probably the first thing we should be doing is opening up the aperture and having discussions with them. And right now, the the export control regime, the the way we actually have to have a conversation as far as cooperate on, on uh, weapons procurement is, is shut down by the interpretations we have with the State Department and in DITSA on how we cooperate and have a TAA 
with uh, the, 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 the uh, document in which you can sit down and cooperate. We need to figure out a way to leverage the engineers of the free world to compete against China. And the only way to do that is to have free-flowing discussions and have uh, tech transfer policies that encourage that. Jerry, uh, let me just ask you this because you sat in the Pentagon, but maybe ask both of you this question, right? So we've done a sector by sector, tier by tier, or multiple uh, analyses of the US industrial base writ large, uh, the defense industrial base and defense industrial capability. I mean, I, I find what's fascinating about this is it is vital for allies and partners to have skin in this game, right? I mean, so even though we look at the F-35 as a way to kill everybody's fighter industries, CQ Brown, the chief of staff of the United States Air Force, General Brown, deserves an enormous amount of credit in making the case that, you know, we want a lot of diversity in munitions, in weapons. We don't want unnecessary standardization because he said, we've repeatedly found that one of our allies and partners has a better tool for the job than we do. And indeed, Buzz Mosley, who was Air Force chief of staff, used to make the point, his favorite weapon was um, the Anglo-French uh, scalp uh, weapon, um, uh, the Storm Shadow, because he was like, it's a massive warhead, it's penetrating, and it's also extremely precise for a lot of the jobs that he had to do. Just like he loved uh, the Mirage Force because it had the highest availability rates uh, of, of airplanes that were, were in his uh, purview, right? So CQ makes the point, I think rightly, if you architect and you integrate by design, Everybody can kind of do their own things and, and you can have a degree of flexibility. Do, do we have, Jerry, any sort of good industrial understanding of what our European allies and partners are bringing to the table, right? I mean, do we have a tier by tier, sector by sector sort of understanding like, holy crap, we're trying to reinvent the wheel. And, you know, it's almost like by accident we find, oh, well, the Norwegians or the Danes actually have this and we find it out by accident as opposed to sort of being like, hey, wait a minute. How do we actually help them maintain a capability that then helps us as well? We don't have the, the same level of visibility and understanding of industrial capabilities outside the U.S. Um, we kind of lag in our, frankly, in a lot, a lot of our industrial understanding of the domestic base even. Um, but the, the way, um, you know, the way I think about it, it is that, um, you know, efforts like, you know, Bill's effort to set up this national technology industrial base, you know, which, uh, to expand, um, you know, make the US, UK, Australia and Canada one industrial base. Or, um, there have been a number of policy efforts like that to do um, that, you know, to help, you know, make allies, you know, kind of more engaged. But what has struggled is, I mean, I take Bill's point on the export controls um, challenges. Um, those are real and, and could be addressed. But I think there are more practical ways that we can get allies involved. And, and these are simple things like, you know, making sure that, you know, um, when we're doing uh, analysis of alternatives in a program executive office, that they don't stamp everything secret, no foreign, so that, you know, when you're developing a program, only, you know, you have to get a huge, you know, uh, you got to do a tech release issue to get, you know, companies like Rheinmetall and um, Saab and so on, um, you know, they're, you know, to look at their capabilities in, engaged. Because we've had some, you know, there has been some tremendous kind of involvement, um, you know, the, you know, the Finkentari Marine win of the Navy frigate, the, uh, the Boeing Saab partnership on the Air Force trainer, we see more of that. Um, but, you know, there's just so much more that can be done um, at the systems level, at the component level, and even on the materials level um, to get um, companies, you know, U.S. subsidiaries of foreign headquarter companies, as well as the foreign companies themselves, 
we just kind of, you know, we just make it too hard on, on, on our um, allies and partners, in my view. And I, I should have put some of our Asian allies and partners in there as well, whether they're uh, Japanese, uh, South Korean. Yep. Uh, in, indeed, yep. you know, Taiwan has some tremendous technology, uh, commercial and otherwise. Bill, sort of your sense uh, on 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 that uh, as as well, just to just to wrap up about you know yeah. just sort of the capability that exists out there and the visibility. Uh, because, you know, you have been spearheading this. I mean, I should really, you deserve enormous credit for, um, you know, always focusing the discussion, not on a defense industrial base, but a national industrial base that obviously the defense industrial base draws off of, right? I mean, so you can't be, you know, successful militarily if you don't have the, the broader industrial capabilities. But from an industrial capability standpoint, we depend on our allies and partners. Taiwan is the most important semiconductor producer, for example. Sort of, you know, what, what, what's the sense and what do we need to do to actually have this visibility to take it out of the hands of the ad hoc to where we can actually start building industrial strategies? No, I, I, think, I think we need to have greater partnerships with our allies to bring all this to the table. And I think that you have to scope this issue in probably two large buckets. And one is existing capabilities, uh, what we and our allies have as far as industrial capacity. Going back to your first question on the lines, how do we maintain these lines? How do we ramp them up? How do we get this capability out to the, to the uh, frontline states to deter against, against aggression? And that's kind of the, the old school industrial policy views we have, but expanded to a larger uh, number of countries within the alliance and, and, and within the Pacific uh, uh, partnerships as well. Then you have this other area of going forward. You know, we, we're, we're facing off against uh, an adversary who has four times our population. It has uh, many, many more times the STEM talent. We need to work together and leverage our engineering and STEM talent to work on the solutions for the next generation weapon systems and the next generation capabilities that, that we need. And frankly, if, if you actually add up the populations, you know, the Western Alliance and, and uh, NATO plus uh, the Pacific uh, partners of, of uh, Japan and, and, and Korea and Australia actually is over a billion people. We, we have the capability to do this. We just have processes and culture and barriers in the way of working together on these future uh, type of uh, systems. And we have to remove those and, and look, look uh, and, and get our arms around that the U.S. can't do this alone anymore. It needs its help from its allies. The, the administration uh, maintains uh, that uh, speed is of the essence. Uh, it is important to move the needle. Um, the key to going fast is actually sort of thinking exactly where you want to be and why, uh, right? I mean, so fast, you know, telling people to go fast is not all that helpful if you're like, well, wait a minute, there are actually a lot of things in warfare that are changing. Um, there is a lot that we can't change, right? So to Kath Hicks and, and uh, Frank Kendall, the deputy secretary and the Air Force secretary, have made clear, you know, that the effectors would be a way to do this. But again, there is a concern that we're not moving as fast. And, and unfortunately, the administration, for a whole variety of reasons, Josh Hawley being one of them, uh, took an extraordinary long period of time to fill out uh, its jobs. But they're getting there. Jerry, what, you know, is there, are you sensing that things are, are moving faster? Uh, and if not, where do you think uh, in, in, the, in the spirit of uh, constructive criticism, things could go better? And, and Bill, I want to get your uh, sense on that as well. 
one of the things that's hardening is, you know, there's a lot of continuity over the last several several administrations, and I see that continuing. I mean, um, the priorities that Heidi Shu developed are were, you know, not very different from the priorities uh, of, for for Griffin, her predecessor. Um, so, the challenge I see is that um, is the how do we get from these kind of um, these good ideas and initial efforts, you know, such as, you know, you know, these innovation outposts like DIU and AFWorks, how do we get that and then to really have some scale that impacts kind of how we um, uh, develop and field capabilities and it, 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 it's not, it, um, it's not there at the moment. Um, you know, there's sort of like two worlds that are, you know, not coming together. Um, uh, and some of that's just, it's, it's hard, it's hard to do, but I, I, I think, um, the, the, the focus I, I think is like, how do we kind of scale, uh, innovation and how do we bring, and then on the big program side, how do we bring more optionality, um, into the industrial base. That means like, you know, right now we focus on long, co big competitions for one um, kind of down select and producer um, of, of a system. And is that really the right model we need for the future? When um, do we need more competition and how do we incentivize that? So um, so those are a couple of things where, you know, I think um, um, that I'd like to see more attention on. Bill? Um there's a, there's a needs to be a focus on the time it takes to do things. And kind of going back to your point, Vago, of, you know, it took us three years to develop the nuclear uh, bomb during World War II. There was a time focus on that. And, uh, and what, I, I what, should what, note, you, you and Dan Pat of the Hudson Institute actually did a, did a report on this, by the way. Yeah, and, 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 and you know, encourage anyone to, to take a look at that. But the key problem on time to develop things is decision time. It's not the time it takes to actually engineer and build prototypes and build operational prototypes and get capability on the field. That's actually been relatively, uh, there's kind of a best practice, relatively standard of how long that takes. It's the decision time. And our processes for decision to start something uh, are, are, are encumbered by the time it takes to do requirements at three years, the time to get money at, at, at another three years and then the time to do contracting, you know, uh, potentially up to two years. You know, that, that's, that's, that's eight years of, of early time before we start on doing something if you do this in a linear fashion. That's, that's, that's our problem. We need to figure out how to go back to, yes, we need to do something critically. We have the money now and we're going to start uh, with, with a competition and, and move forward uh, with developing capability in less than a year. If we can get decision time down to down to a year, we can actually deliver capability a lot faster. Um, we're uh, rapidly running out of time, and there are other big questions we're going to discuss when we have you guys on uh, back on again in a in a in a couple of weeks. But um, Mike Brown uh, is stepping down uh, as head of the Defense Innovation Unit, uh, somebody who served uh, with distinction in industry, uh, whether instructing at the Defense Acquisition University, and then uh, obviously. Um, um, uh, you know, filling an important job at an important time when the X was dropped from it. Uh, and so it's not DIUX, it's DIU uh, administration looking to fill that job. You know, get, let each of you take a bite at this apple. What's Mike's legacy going to be? And more importantly, you know, there were frustrations. There are frustrations about 
the defense innovation ecosystem, how much of it is innovation theater, both on the government, but as well as industry's part, but then also to be able to scale a good idea and get it in. And there's just so much Mike can do about that, right? Or, or DIU can do, or Stoiki or anybody else associated with the system uh, can, can do, or Bucky or anybody else. How, you know, let, let's take it to you, Jerry, and then to you, Bill. How, what can the administration do to do better with the next person who's going to be filling this job? Yeah. Yeah, no, Mike's a great American. Uh, one of the things that, that I think Mike deserves the com complete credit for is he almost single-handedly in his first report on the threat of Chinese technology um, theft really built a bipartisan consensus that led to the changing of CFIUS laws and really a rec clear recognition of the, the China threat uh, across both, um, on both sides of the aisle. So, I mean, he did that before he became DIU director. And I think that is an incredible legacy of his. And um, I think his role, at, his, his work at DIU was tremendous. He really worked to build portfolios and to, um, uh, to help push innovation um, uh, through the department. And I think there's been, uh, we just did a white paper on the issue of um, AIML and predictive maintenance which is what a set of projects that he started back in 2017 at DIU. Uh, and there was also projects done at, um, um, started at the Jake. Um, and those efforts, I, you know, I, I was pleased to find that those projects actually led to efforts in the services that they, they were recept, received. And it wasn't something that was dismissed as not invented here, is that they took the algorithms that were developed at, through the DIU contracts and said, you know, these are not quite right, but let's start with these and let's go forward. And the services are continuing to invest in that kind of, in those kind of areas. Now, the challenge is, is that's not happening everywhere. And that's not happening in the scale needed to address some, you know, address the time and the, the, the threat challenges that are, that face us. And that's where I think, you know, to build up, you know, I think the next, what I'd love to see is that, the next um, you know, person at DIU or the next person that has that kind of role is to be more of, a, of an integrator, you know, because we, we have all these pockets across the Department of uh, Innovation. We need to figure out a way to, to scale those and, um, uh, and um, keep those from being just like little outposts, but to get more synergies across the department. So I'd like to see that. Um, um, and I know Mike would too, so I'd love to see that in his, the next successor of that role. Uh, Bill, Bill, your take, and and uh, I know you've done work on scaling, uh, right? I mean, how do we go from, okay, we got to do this to actually doing it, right? I mean, one of the things, you know, <laughs> one of the reasons you're a couple of inches shorter than you used to be was because you were actually trying to craft the policies <laughs> to allow this to happen, right? That's, that's where the rubber sort of meets the road. Um, you know, sort of legacy, what to do better, but also what specifically and how to do better. No, I, I think in, in the first instance, I think, you know, Mike has, has done a great job, but the reality is there's so much innovation theater going on in the department because the leadership of the department just doesn't understand the, the innovation potential out there in the venture capital world, which is, you know, says 600 billion dollars in investments moving forward or their private equity industry, which is at, you know, at 1.8 trillion. These trillions of dollars investments are the type of companies and innovation that the department needs to leverage. Instead, they're still focusing on, you know, $100,000 SBIR grants going to, uh, you know, some companies. So, so this, this, this is a problematic the department needs to get their act, 
act together on that. But the issue going back to scaling, scaling takes money. And, and at some point, they're going to meet a need for a flexible pot of money to scale up some of these projects when you find the innovation that's residing out there in the, in the private sector that can be a, a, adapted to uh, defense needs. Well, you, you need more than a $100,000 SBIR grant or a, or a $2 million uh, RIF uh, Rapid Innovation Fund uh, uh, contract. You need 25 to 50 to $100 million to, to scale up uh, ideas. And that's something that the department and, and frankly, the Appropriations Committee have been loath to do. And until that happens, we are going to continually go through this innovation theater and, 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 and not uh, bring forward the type of capabilities we need. It's, it's always the appropriator's fault, isn't it, Bill? At, at some point it is, yes. <laughs> I, I, am, I am poking good-natured fun speaking to a legendary authorizer here. So I was just having a little bit of fun. Uh, gentlemen, thanks very much for joining us. Great conversation. Uh, as always, look forward to having you guys uh, back on again soon because there's a lot more to discuss and we want to sort of break the elephant down uh, as, uh, so that we can um, you know, help, uh, help move the needle in a way the needle needs to be moved. Thanks so very much for uh, joining us and also for the, work, the great work that both of you and your teams are doing. Thanks very much.